Today's reading is uh, Joel uh, 28 through 32 on page 762 in your um, pew Bibles, if you don't want to read it off the screen. Um, the Lord will pour out his spirit. This is God's word. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be all there shall be those who escaped as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Okay, good morning. Water, notes, reading glasses, microphone. We are ready to roll with one more thing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together in your name to worship you in this place. Lord, we thank you for the music, the glorious horn section we heard, the, uh, the praises that we could sing to you. Thank you for the, the uh, worship of music and song. We thank you that we can pray to you this morning, and we thank you for your word of truth. Please open that word of truth to, to us through your spirit as we look into what you have to say through the prophet Joel this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It was November 2003. The place was a stadium named Highbury in North London. Highbury had a nickname where dreams are made. The game played at the stadium was the original football, soccer that is. Highbury was home to the Arsenal Football Club. A book titled Fever Pitch was made about an Arsenal fan and his experiences there. And Fever Pitch was then adopted American audiences and made into a Red Sox story, substituting Fenway Park as the star, basically a sporting worship center. On this November day, it was the North London Derby. Two neighboring clubs, Arsenal Gunners and Tottenham Hotspur, were playing, and there are no fiercer rivals. The way that the home and away fans are seated is vastly different in English football than American the visiting cl club gets a defined section with its own entrance. The staircases enclose all of the visiting club support into this one section, and then the staircases are lined with security guards. I would not say that they are there to keep the peace. That would be asking way too much of them. But they are there to avert a riot. And the, that photo that you see behind me was just taken a few weeks ago as West Ham had scored against Tottenham at their White Hart Lane home. 
So that day at Highbury, my brother Steve, Scott Sanders, Jim Murgott, and I were part of one solid throng of 5,000 Spurs supporters. We were in the Spurs section. None of us sat down once, none of the 5,000. The singing or chanting, whichever you, you choose to call it, never stopped. There was creativity in these chants, too, I might add. More substance than, let's go, Red Sox. <laughs> and typically, these chants were situational. Th- that day, the classic Spurs anti-Arsenal song rang out. Highbury is a library after Spurs took the lead from Darren Anderton's goal. However, there was one particular chant that stood out from them all. With 22 minutes left in the match and Spurs clinging to a 1-0 lead, they sang out repeatedly, Look at the clock, we're counting it off. Look at the clock, we're counting it off. Well, going for that chant at that time was a very poor choice. Robert Perez scored within a minute to level it at 1-1. to Then, well, you guessed it, didn't you? Arsenal moved ahead with 10 minutes remaining from Freddie Lundberg's goal. You might have guessed that Arsenal won. Probably less likely you guessed it was Lundberg that bagged the goal. By the way, the chanting here is an interactive thing. Retributive chants are common. So the 20,000 Arsenal supporters at Highbury that day could then counter, look at the clock, we're counting it off. Arsenal would finish that season with no defeats over 49 matches. You can Google the Invincibles, and Arsenal will be the number one uh, result of your search. The Spurs supporters thought they owned the clock, an arrogant claim, and they were to regret it. Well, this morning, we're going to, to work out the movement of the Spirit of God across time with a prophecy from the book of Joel as our primary text. God manages the clock of all time. God's clock is reliably in place as his plan unfolds. Time is in God's hands. The book of Joel shows us a time when Israel's land is decimated by an army of locusts. Biblical scholars disagree whether the locusts represent a metaphor for a foreign army or a natural disaster. But either way, the description in Joel chapter 1 is horrific. So... Joel calls for the people to sound the alarm, and thus we find Israel in a state of national lament. The people of Israel pour out their hearts to God, and we can learn a lot today from the many examples of lament in the Word of God that it contains. If someone is lamenting, they are having regret, remorse, repentance. A lament puts us closer to living out a dependency on God. In chapter 2, Joel urges the people to turn. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. What a relief that the clock of history ultimately is controlled, guided, organized, owned by a God who hears his people when they cry out to him. 
And God's response has to do with the pouring out of his spirit. In Joel's prophecy, this, this is a very big promise. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There is a wide range of dates suggested for when Joel was written. However, the latest dating still puts Joel over 400 years before the time of Christ. According to the prophecy of Joel, following some unspecified event, God will pour out his spirit, making all distinctions irrelevant. That is the promise Joel relates to his hearers then and his readers now. This spirit will energize God's people for God's service. We first hear of the work of God's spirit early on in our Bibles. Genesis 1-2, in fact. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Throughout the Old Testament, God's Spirit empowered people for specific tasks at specific times. Examples can be found in Bazalel, Nexus 35, Jephthah, Judges 11, Samson, Judges 14 and 15, and many others. To go further on just one of those in Basilel, uh, for the example of Basilel in Exodus 35, starting in 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Basilel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze. For those of us artistically gifted, whether it is painting, photography, crocheting, and so forth, this is one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture that we can read when we read it in the context of the construction of the tabernacle. God's Spirit empowering God's people for artistic tasks. Another encouraging Old Testament Old Testament text about God's Spirit is found in Numbers 11 to 12. Frustrations had built in the wandering of Israel through the desert, through the wilderness, and Moses needed a breakthrough. God accomplishes this by telling Moses to call 70 elders and officers to the tent of meeting. Numbers 11:17, And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will, make, I will take some of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now, many a well-intended modern author has taken this text as an example of a business case for delegation, but I would say that totally flattens its depth and misses its key point. So here's what happened next. Moses called the 70 elders as God had told him to do, but two remained in the camp, Eldad and Medad. And we read that the Spirit rested on them in the camp where they were prophesying. So let's pick up in Numbers 11.27. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets? that the Lord would put his spirit on them, that Moses could have two more to bear the burden of all the people. 
Well, this was burden-bearing and burden-sharing. Moses couldn't have too much of that. Could we today have too much burden-bearing? Certainly not. So what exactly does God's promise have to do with the Spirit, according to Joel? Joel 2, 28-32 is written in three phrases, and we will look at each in turn. The outpouring of God's Spirit in prophecy, in 28 to 29, cosmic signs heralding the day of the Lord in 30 to 31, and the security of God's people in 32. Earlier in Joel's prophecy, there seemed to be no escape route, and now the escape route is guaranteed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit. God will pour out his Spirit, builds on an earlier verse in chapter 2, for he has poured out for you abundant rain. Like rain to a thirsty land is God's Spirit to a thirsty soul. The Bible guides us in so many places to hunger and thirst in a spiritual way, a spirit-based Dimension, like a deer panting for streams of water, Psalm 42 puts it. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Pouring out his spirit is a rich expression. It includes individuals, but it is much bigger than that. It is a lavish picture. It is not a drizzle. It is a downpour. Joel's readers were well aware of the force of this wordplay of a land in need of rain for crops and the pouring out language of the Spirit. And this pouring out will be expansive, sons and daughters, male and female, both genders, old and young, multi-generational, slave and free, no social or economic class distinction. This would have been remarkable to hear. The result will be that spirit-filled people will be prophets themselves. Think of it. Those who receive this gift, they will be prophets. So what what did it mean to be a prophet? It means to speak the words given by God himself. Prophecy had a huge impact, assuring the people of Israel of God's presence in their midst. Along with this prophecy, there will be dreams and visions. These two are highly related. Visions are like dreams while awake. It was almost a technical term for divine revelation. God spoke his word to the prophets, and to some he gave dreams and visions. Dreams are very important in the Old Testament. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Solomon, Daniel, serving as examples. Continuing with verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this promise of the pouring out of the Spirit is placed uncompromisingly in the context of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a key expression throughout the Bible. It essentially refers to a time when God will have his day. It's described by the prophets as a day like a two-sided coin, saving grace and blessing on one side and judgment for sin on the other. 
and the day of the Lord will be heralded by cosmic portents, blood, fire, smoke. These three words recall the book of Exodus. This is Exodus language. The blood of the Passover that secured Israel for safety, a pillar of fire lighted their way through the night as they were in the wilderness, and smoke wrapped Mount Sinai as God spoke with Moses and gave them written instructions for life. As David Pryor puts it, all of these portents express the overwhelming reality of a holy God present with his people, protecting, preserving, providing, proclaiming, and thereby calling them to attention. Before the day comes, there will be another display of God's holiness. Jesus speaks of these signs in Matthew 24, 27 to 31, as the coming of the Son of Man. Earthquake and midday darkness were both used to describe the events during the crucifixion. The language of Joel and Jesus is picked up again in Revelation 6, 12 to 17, 8, 1 to 13, 16, 1 to 9, 20, 11 to 15. Don't worry, there will be no test today on that. Then Joel's third phrase, another dramatic development, but this time very much in tune, and, and at all times very much in tune with the day of the Lord, that of saving grace. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. It was the show Survivor, if I can recall my television history correctly, that introduced the new genre of reality TV. Well, here is the ultimate Survivor story. But no human skills, no bartering, no diplomacy, no street smarts or smarts of any kind will lead to an escape. Rather, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will survive. Everyone who calls upon his mercy, as Joel described, young and old, rich and poor, men and women. In human history, it is God who counts off the clock. Neither Spurs nor Arsenal supporters, nor even the Red Sox protecting a lead in the ninth inning. Wait a minute, I'm catching a mind, uh, a thought wave. It's from over here. No, Dave Brown, not even Tom Brady in a two-minute drill, although I will grant that sometimes he has some magical powers. As, um, as God's plan has unfolded, our Bibles make it clear that human history expand, extends across two time horizons, two covenant time periods. The Old Testament and the New Testament can be portrayed in clockwork terms, a wind-up and a wind-down stage, with the time of Jesus' ministry at earth, on earth at its center. In the wind-up stage of the Old Testament, Israel wanted to be counting off the clock on their enemies. But Isaiah 49, 6 Paints a different picture, though. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So, how was Joel's prophecy of the outpouring of, this, of God's Spirit on humanity 
going to be fulfilled. Something was needed to make this, to ha- make this happen, to enable it. Something with humanity had to change. The survival plan hoped for by the faithful God-fearers of the Old Testament times looked forward to a Messiah. The earliest preaching of the apostles declared that the Messiah had come. The message shared, taught, preached was neither a standard Jewish message with Jesus added at the end, nor was it a freestanding announcement of a new religion cut off from its Jewish roots. Rather, it's the story of Jesus understood as the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant narrative. This news is the good news. This is the gospel, the force that brought the church into being and shaped its life. Jesus, the Messiah. In Luke chapter 4, there is the occasion of Jesus in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth. On this occasion, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus, and Jesus read from Isaiah 61, a reference that is fully packed with messianic imagery. Luke 4, 18 to 19 says, and this is where Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, these words of Isaiah were a prophecy that the Messiah would minister to a people in distress, a people who were lamenting. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And anointed means, unsurprisingly, a pouring out. Jesus applied Isaiah's prophecy to himself as a fulfillment of that promise. This is what he said. Today, the scripture, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This announcement was so shocking that it it triggered a revolt. And there was a movement to push him off a cliff. Seven weeks following the death and resurrection of Jesus came the day of Pentecost. And the existing priesthood would be transformed into an entirely new kind of priesthood. And here's Luke's accounting of what took place in Acts 2. And I, uh, I'll have you uh, uh, refer to the printed Bibles for this when we move through a lot of verses. But I'll read it for you, but we will, we will be doing some work in Acts up ahead. So this is the start of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt 
and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Well, what a scene, what a list of people gathered, all those places. So Peter must explain what is happening. And he does so by proclaiming this as the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. He recites the passage that we just read, and he makes a change in term at the outset of the quotation that is important. And it shall come to pass afterward, now becomes in the last days. It shall be. Why? Because the first Christians believed that they were living in a new stage of time, a new epoch. Not epic. I have youth in my house. If you're a teenager, everything is epic. The new Chick-fil-A opening in Framingham was an epic event. But this is E-P-O-C-H. And it means a time marked by an event that begins a new period or development. Our day remains in a wind-down stage of history, as I described earlier, as it was for our early church brothers and sisters whether our days are early last days or mid-last days, last-last days, or last-last days, we don't know. Then Peter continues to explain, and he's very concerned of people understanding that the Messiah had come. So he continues, and he adds this clarifying statement. Men of Israel, this is Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Furthering the point of Jesus' identity as the Messiah, he then turns to Psalms. He quotes Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Under the new covenant... The royal priesthood of all believers, those who call on the name of Jesus, will enjoy the gift of the Spirit. This is, by the way, 1 Peter 2.9. So what are we to do with the gift? I want to say one thing first. Uh, Jim Packer wrote a book uh, called Keeping in Step with the Spirit, and then I was happy to hear it stated by Scott and Drew earlier, but there's a wonderful book. Uh, for a long treatment of this by Packer called Keep in Step with the Spirit. So I would recommend that for summer reading. Uh, for this morning, I would like to summarize with two, two points. We are to trust God for our security and serve God with our witness. First, security. Consider the political presidential campaign of 2016, if you dare, it's something else, isn't it? It was about it was three election seasons ago. I was taking a class from Paul House in uh, Wheaton, Illinois, and, and Paul House is a stand-up guy. He's the uh, 
He's, a, he's on the translation committee. I believe we read some of his translations this morning. He's been the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's written uh, an Old Testament theology, but, and he always would stand up and start the class with prayer. But one day during this presidential season, he didn't. He stood up and he goes, and furthermore, my opponent is a lying, no-good, two-faced loser who cannot be trusted. And uh, then he stopped and he said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but this, this election season has finally driven me crazy. So does any, can anyone relate? <laughs> so these candidates, think, think about the promises that they make. That is, when they're not beating living daylights out of each other, what are they saying? When they speak on foreign policy, they promise security. I will protect you from your enemies. I will keep America safe and free. And when they speak on domestic policy, it's safety again keeping us safely in jobs and health. They promise jobs and the best health care in the world. So these are very good things indeed. Can they deliver? They might possibly make adjustments that help a bit, but they certainly cannot save a soul. The security they promise does not work at the life-saving level that we just read about in Exodus and Joel and Luke and Acts Remember Joel's Exodus language, blood, fire, smoke, as God called his people out of slavery in Egypt in the wind-up stage of time. This was a picture of God calling people from slavery to sin into freedom from sin. That's the picture of that Exodus. The promise given to Joel in the new Exodus new Exodus salvation characterized the lavish outpouring of God's Spirit. Secondly, we are to serve God with our witness. Serve God with our witness. The Spirit has energized us for service. The Spirit has the power to change hearts, minds, lives, and God wants to do this with people. Remember again God's graciousness from Joel 2. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The New Testament church described the role each Christian has to include that of prophet and priest. Every believer becomes a witness. A church is not on mission to itself. The message must go out. This past spring, we heard from Eric Raymond during our Westgate Spring Life on Mission conference. Listen to Eric's words. Take evangelistic opportunities. It is my experience that if I am praying for God to bring me evangelistic opportunities, then I am much more likely to see and seize them. If I am not praying, I tend to operate with the comfortable fog of selfishness and silence. Pray for opportunities. It is a very healthy thing for a Christian to do. Serve the Lord by telling the most wonderful story there is to tell. Catherine Hockey put this to song in 1866. I love to tell the story. It is pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it so wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation, of security, 
from God's own holy word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your spirit was poured out on Pentecost after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, our Savior, and that the Spirit reverberates today. May we be energized for the service, for your service of uh, uh, trusting in your, your security and of witnessing to our faith. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.